Now then, let's uh, turn to the book of Genesis and chapter 11. That's page 11 in the Church Bible. Genesis chapter 11. And uh, let's read again from the beginning, the opening four verses. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come and let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And particularly these words. And they said, Come, and let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, as I mentioned, I want to begin with you to study the life and times and ministry of Daniel, a young man who lived in Babylon around about 500 years before the birth of Christ. Um, It may seem strange um, to begin our study in Daniel way back here in Genesis. But I think that that's really where we need to begin. And the reason for that has to do with Babylon itself. Of course, it's an important city historically. It's important in the Bible too, very important. But of course, it is the city where Daniel lived. It's where he became a prime minister. It's where the prophecies were given to him concerning the Christ to come. It's where the whole book of Daniel is set. And to understand that book and what it really means to live in Babylon, uh, you have to come back to the foundation of Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. It's interesting that you find its foundation in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis (coughs) 1 to 11 obviously, is the foundation of the whole Bible. But it's the foundation in a critical sense. Everything that's of supreme importance is found in these opening chapters. And if you reject any of them, whether creation or the fall or the flood or Babel itself, then you run into serious difficulties in your understanding of the world. All the main things that God has to teach us are taught in Genesis 1 to 11. Somebody said long ago that they are the text of the Bible and the rest of the Bible is the outworking of it. And that, in many respects, is true. So the story of Babylon begins here. Um, As I said, it'll help you to understand what it means for Daniel to live in Babylon. It'll help you to understand, too, what it means for you to live in this fallen world, which is Babylon, too, as we'll see later on. So then the founding of Babylon is very, very important. 
Um, I suppose you will have gathered from our two readings that Babylon has not disappeared. Babylon, the city, as people knew it in Mesopotamia, is long gone and buried. Saddam Hussein was interestingly involved in trying to rebuild it. He modeled himself very much as the modern Nebuchadnezzar, and he had his his own name stamped on every brick that was being used in its rebuilding. But, of course, God eh, removed him. But Babylon, the city, very much lives on. Its spirit lives on, and it will live on until the end, the very end, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It still lives on eh, spiritually. There is such a thing as the spirit of Babylon, It lives religiously. In other words, there is a Babylonian religion too, um, and it's closer to home than we might think. And there's also a political form of Babylon, which still works away in all our cities. So Babylon's not dead. It's not dead. It's alive. And the stronger it functions as a city, the more conscious we are that we too are called like Daniel to live, to labor, and to witness in that city. Now, to find out then what Babylon's all about, we, we don't go back two and a half thousand years to Daniel's time. We go back four and a half thousand years and to the building of Babylon and the Tower of Babylon. And that takes us to around about 200 or 250 years after the great flood itself. Now, the flood, you'll remember, was God's judgment upon a fallen world. His judgment on a fallen world. He gave us the rainbow following the flood as a sign that he would never again wipe out the whole of humanity until he comes to destroy the world by fire. In other words, between flood and fire, there is a dispensation of grace and long-suffering and patience while God is calling us into his kingdom. Now, you would think that humanity, uh, the small remnant of it that survived the flood, you would think they would have learned their lesson and quickly sought to establish God's kingdom on the earth. That's not what happens. What you find is a quite a staggering migration here that I know it's translated from the east, but pretty much every translator has now agreed that that should be towards the east. You find the whole of humanity moving towards the east and settling in the plain of Shinar. When I say the whole of humanity, it's hard to know exactly how many. You have about 250 years post the flood. So it's quite easy for the population to have risen to something like three quarters of a million, possibly even more. Now, it could be less. You may be talking about a population of 100,000, but it could be as many as 700,000 moving to the east. So they're moving from the vicinity of where the Ark settled into the region of Mesopotamia. Now, those of you who study ancient history will know that that's really where we begin to look at the cradle of human civilization. This is where humanity settles, in the fertile plain between two rivers. Mesopotamia means between two rivers. They call them the Tigris and the Euphrates, the names that rivers had had before the flood. They carried the same names with them to the rivers after the flood. It doesn't mean that they were the same rivers at all. 
I mean, if you happen to land in New York in America, you, you're not in New York. Uh, there's a London in Ontario. It's not the same as London. It's just that people who leave one place tend to take something with them. So they settle in the plain of Shinar, and they begin to build cities. Nothing wrong with that, you would say. Fair enough. They begin to, first of all, build Babylon, then Eruk and Akkad, three cities in the south of Mesopotamia. Then they move north, and they build three cities, of which Nineveh is the principal one. Now, there's no doubt that the Bible right away takes us to the first of these cities as being the key one, Babylon, which is the first city built after the flood. You'll remember from a few weeks ago, we looked at Adam's son Cain being the first builder of a city. And he called the name of the city, remember, after his own son Enoch, a very humanistic thing to do. You can keep that in your mind. But here, the first city after the flood is Babylon. And um, at its heart was to be a tower. Come, they said, let us make bricks and bake them. Let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Now, the Tower of Babel has fascinated people uh, for hundreds of years. There are two questions concerning it. One's much more important than the other. The first one, the lesser important one, is what was it like? Have we any way of knowing what the tower was like? Well, to be honest, I don't think it's a great mystery. The, the city of Babylon and the other cities of Assyria were full of temples and towers. Uh, you're probably familiar with their names. They were called ziggurats. They looked like a kind of cross between a, a pyramid and a pagoda. Um, the pagodas you'll find in Asia, pyramids, of course, in Egypt. Uh, by the way, it's not an accidental similarity because after the people are dispersed in different language groups with Babel, they still take that tower building with them. Egypt was quickly established after this. Greece quickly established too. And as people moved and colonized the earth, they still built these towers. Um, perhaps we'll come back to that. And it's not really difficult to imagine what the Tower of Babel is like. In fact, there is a site uh, in Babylon um, where the ground plan of Nebuchadnezzar's tower was unearthed in 1913. The Roman um, historian Herodotus, he mentions this tower as standing in his own day. That's around 460 BC. Now, it's more than likely that Nebuchadnezzar and indeed another Babylonian king rebuilt the original tower of Babel, which would have been a fantastically large structure anyway. So it's more than likely that the one standing in around 400 BC, is built on the original site of the Tower of Babel. And if that's so, you get its dimensions. It's 400 meters square, and it's plain that its height, from Herodotus' description, was somewhere around 300 feet. <clears throat> what you have is a series of rectangular buildings that are getting smaller as you go up them, and at the top 
was normally a temple uh, because they had to do with the worship of false gods. Now, I'm not saying that the original temple did. Again, I'll come to that in a second. But certainly as, the, as these ziggurats began to multiply, they were associated with the worship of idols. The, this big tower in Babylon was actually demolished by Alexander the Great. And when he demolished it, he actually relocated it. He was going to relocate it and to rebuild it, not surprisingly, to his own glory and honor. But of course, he died very young before he could complete the project. Sometimes there's something about people that um, just means that God has to intervene and cut them short. When people are busy making a name for themselves, uh, God sometimes just cuts them short. Uh, As we'll see tonight, the, the glory must go to God and not to man. So even when Daniel came into Babylon, um, nearly a couple of thousand years later, it's the first thing he would be aware of approaching the city, this giant tower in the center of the city, built on the site of the original Tower of Babel. Now, what's it for? Well, I mentioned that later towers were associated with religion. There would be a temple at the top, usually the signs of the zodiac, and the sun, the sun and the moon and the stars would be worshipped. Now, it is possible that the Tower of Babel was built with that in mind too. Um, God called Abraham in Genesis 12, just about 200 years after the Tower of Babel. That's all. And when God called Abraham, we're told in the Bible that Abraham's fathers had served false gods. So it wouldn't really be too much of a stretch to associate the original Tower of Babel with the worship of false gods. That may be. But still, there's no word of it here. Idolatry is not mentioned in Genesis 11. Um, While I'm at it, and it's a little bit of a digression, but it does say certainly, uh, let us make a tower in verse 4 whose top is in the heavens. I I read an article by a person who's got a website devoted to ridiculing the things of the Bible, and he said, well, here you have another example of people uh, who are trying to puncture God's heaven, as it were, and trying to dwell amongst the gods. This tower has nothing to do with puncturing heaven. The people who wrote the Bible didn't think heaven could be punctured. Um, This expression in the Hebrew, whose top to heaven, or heavens, I mean, the, the plural is the same, and the singular in Hebrew. It can be singular heaven or plural heavens. The idea here is just a top that just goes way, way up into the heavens. I mean, we would use the same thing ourselves. If we would see a giant tower, we might say, well, that goes right up into the heavens. We don't mean by that that it's trying to go where God is. The Jews had their own way of speaking about God's heaven, which was the third heaven. That's not the heaven that's represented here. It is simply a top that's going up and up. They want to build a high tower. That's all. But there's no word about it having anything to do with God's. What the Bible does say in verse 4 is, Let us build ourselves a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, 
lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And that takes you to the key of what the tower is about. It's not about worshipping the sun or the moon or the stars. It's not about trying to get where God is or anything like that. It's about making a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. That's your key. And there are really two ideas in that. The first is rejecting God. And the second, which is more sinister still, in a way, replacing God. Rejecting God and replacing God. Let's take, first of all, rejecting God. In other words, the Tower of Babel is a rebellion against God. And that brings us to, right away to the person who's at the, at the head of this movement, this man called Nimrod, who we met in Genesis 10. Now, he's an important figure historically. His name is all over Babylon. The Babylonians ended up worshipping Marduk. Now, that MRD series of consonants, and you always work with consonants like that when you're dealing with other languages, it's Nimrod again. Nimrod, in other words, slowly becomes a, a kind of god himself in Babylonian culture. You see the same thing happening in other cultures. People who have been great in their past, you see, are mythologized and they become divine, pretty nearly divine. Well, that's what happened to Nimrod. He was at the man who was at the head of this eastward migration and the development of the city. Now, I want you to note three things about him. First of all, his name, Nimrod. The name means simply rebellion or even in the exhortative form, let us rebel. Well, that's your clue. That tells you what the Tower of Babel is all about. Tells you what Babylon's all about. Tells you what this fallen world is all about. I mean, here's your clue at the beginning of Genesis. Human cities, human achievements, human organizations are about rebellion. They're about rebellion against God's authority, God's word, God's program for living, God's program for corporate living, God's program for city living, God's program for individual living. Let us rebel. Nimrod, he is anti-God. Now, at first, maybe not overtly so, and who knows exactly why, although it's interesting that he's a grandson of Canaan and a great-grandson of Ham. Obviously, a great-great-great-grandson of Noah. Um, Canaan, you'll remember, his grandfather was cursed. Uh, God judged him. He, he was the one who saw Noah drunk. Now, it's a terrible thing to think of Noah drunk. I'm conscious of that, and it's almost awful to mention it without explaining it, but I, I can't do that right now. But when Noah was uh, an older man, he became drunk, and uh, he lay in his tent, and he wasn't careful to cover himself. Um, Canaan exposed Noah, and uh, God judged him for that. He took delight in his grandfather's sin. So God judged the people of Canaan. They were to be judged by being in a position of servitude to others. Nimrod doesn't like that. He resists it. He resists it. He doesn't want an inferior place. He's not content to be subject to Shem, the family of Shem, or the family of Japheth. He's just not content with it. 
He has the spirit of pride in his heart. Well, we all do, I suppose. We can either check it, conquer it by grace, by the power of the gospel, which is the only thing, by the way, that can check and conquer it. I mean, if the power of God doesn't check and conquer your pride, your pride will lead you to hell. It is the parent sin of the heart. I've often said that unbelief is the parent sin in the head. Pride is the parent sin in the heart. And Nimrod is full of it. He doesn't want to serve anybody. He wants to rule. So he rejects God's program. We'll see what that means in a moment. But the key for us right now is that his name means rebellion. Rebellion. Which is where the human race still is, is it not? It's where you are. If you're not a Christian, you are rebelling against God. Now, of course, that's quite consistent with something like coming to church. It's quite consistent with listening to a preacher. It's quite consistent with reading the Bible. Because it comes out in other matters. It comes out in, in your insistence on living your life by your code, in your way, making your choices without consulting God. Let us do this. Let us build a city. Let us make a tower. Let us make bricks. There's no word of prayer, no word of consultation with God, nothing. In fact, it's rebellion. It also comes through in his character, as well as his name, Nimrod, rebellion, there's his character. We're told in chapter 10 and verse 9 that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, the expression before the Lord is not the normal one that you would find in the Hebrew, just simply um, before his face. It means adversity against the Lord. He was not subject to God. Some people wonder if the kind of hunter that he was was more a hunter of men than a hunter of animals. I don't know. That may be. But he became to be a great one. We're told that he began to be a mighty one on the earth in verse 8. Now that expression, mighty one, is a deliberate harking back to the kind of tyrants that we had before the flood. You'll remember before God sent the flood into the world that there was a race of people who grew up on the earth who were tyrannical. They are, to, they are called, in the Hebrew, gibor, mighty men. And uh, they ruled it over others, and they presided over a system of bloodshed and violence. Now, that word is deliberately used for Nimrod here because that's the spirit that's come back into the world. That's the spirit that's growing in the world. And this man, this mighty man, is a mighty hunter against the Lord. He's in the face of God. He is against God. And again, as well as his character, you'll notice what he actually does. He leads a migration eastward, and he begins to plant cities. Now here again, eastward. Always in the Bible, it means going away from God. Cain moved east to the land of Nod, which means wandering. You remember? He moved away from the presence of God, where the cherubim was, he moved away into a land of wandering. Significant when it comes to Babylon too. Lot lifted up his eyes eastward towards the plain of Sodom and he moved away from God. And here the typology is very plain. There is a drift away from God. The mass of mankind are moving collectively in the wrong direction. 
It's more than a drift. I mean, a drift is something that just kind of happens. But this is not happening. This is driven, or rather it's being pulled, and it's being pulled by this powerful man, Nimrod. And of course, as well as moving east, he wants to build cities. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is not obvious, but the problem lies in the fact that God had told humanity to disperse. Immediately after the flood, he gave the command again to replenish the earth. And in fact, he divided the peoples into distinct family groups. We have that recorded in chapter 10. Now, it's a fascinating document, and the document certainly reaches down in its genealogy way past the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel happens about almost halfway through in the days of Peleg, we're told, in the fifth generation when the earth was divided. But the division had happened earlier, and God meant these distinct family groups to colonize the earth and, of course, to establish government. It was God's plan for nations to coexist with their own separate government, people groups. But you'll notice here in verse 4, when the people say, and it's Nimrod's agitation, okay, there's usually somebody, when the people want to do something, there's usually somebody who really wants it. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Notice how defiant that is, you see. God's told us to scatter, but we're not going to scatter. God has told us to disperse, to live at peace, to establish separate family groups and national identities. No, we won't do it. And these cities are being established to become effectively the center of the earth. And the tower itself is to function as the great symbol of unity and strength, the focal point, the center of a new world government, which will always be in the hands of Nimrod and his descendants. They will defy God's order. God had told them to serve. No, they will rule. That's in all our hearts. Serve the Lord? No, I'll rule. And the whole city is permanent. You see, again, this is rather hidden in the language. Let us make bricks and bake them. They had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. This had never, as far as we can see, happened before. Um, Cities were built of stone prior to this. And any bricks that were used were just mud bricks that were sun-dried. But these are clay bricks that are kiln-dried heated by a furnace, permanence, permanent city, Babylon, with the tower at its center, a centralized world with a single powerful ruler. That's the way fallen humanity seems to want it. A centralized world, a tight central government that is run on an anti-God line. It's quite interesting. I don't know whether you're pro or anti-Europe. I can understand reasons why some people would be pro and some would be anti for different reasons. But people have often pointed out that there is something strange about the European project. 
The major parliament building in Strasbourg was built in a strange way. It was built in a deliberately unfinished way. I mean, if you look at a picture of it, you'll see that. It's, it's not finished. It was meant to be not finished. It was modelled, actually, on a Dutch uh, painting by Bruegel, a famous painting of the Tower of Babel itself, which was, of course, an unfinished tower. If you, if you look up that picture, look it up on the Internet, you'll see that it's pretty much exactly what the Parliament building is in Strasbourg. The objective of the European project politically, now it's got a lot of positives economically, I suppose, at least you could argue that it does, but politically it's more sinister. It was presented very peacefully as many languages, one voice. The original posters propagating it, many languages, one voice. You'll notice verse 1 here says as one language, one voice. This project is many languages, one voice. Yes, many languages in the European project. But what is the voice? Is it, come now and let us serve the Lord? Is it, I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me? No. You get the feeling that the political voice that pervades is an anti-God one. Would the, let's, let's suppose for the sake of argument that the political union continued ever more close until there was one singular secular constitution to govern the whole of Europe. Do you think it would have God at its heart? Do you think it would have God even on its periphery? Possibly even a single little paragraph giving some kind of liberty to those who wanted to do something, but that would be it. The project would have at its center what? Man, come and let us make a name for ourselves. But in any case, that was the intention of Babel. Whatever the intention in Europe, that was the intention of Babel. One language, one voice, and a voice that is defiant of God. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this rejection of God. The first is just how widespread it is. You'll notice in verse 1 that the whole earth had one language and one speech. What's the difference between one language and one speech? Well, pretty much everybody you look up ends up explaining this sentence to mean one language and one language. But it can't mean that. The, the one speech must mean something different from one language. Surely what it means is that they have one voice. In other words, they're all saying the same thing. And they're saying it in the same language. They're all saying the same thing and they're saying it in the same language. In other words, they're all thinking alike and they're all speaking alike. Now, unity is wonderful if you're uniting around a wonderful thing. If you're uniting around a bad thing, it's not wonderful. I mean, let's take the unity of Psalm 2, which we're going to sing in a moment. Psalm 2 tells us that the kings of the earth are as one. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that kind of harmony amongst all the kings of the earth. But the harmony, sadly, was an anti-God 
harmony. I mean, you're, you're used to singing the words, I suppose, but Psalm 2 is significant too. It comes right at the beginning. It's the one that introduces the kingship of Jesus. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people mind vain things? Uh, vain things here is not innocent. Uh, I suppose vanity never is, but in fact it's sinister. It's um, vain reasonings, which means godless reasonings. Kings of the earth set themselves. They take their position. The princes of the earth are combined. Now, they're, they're in union here. Now, wonderful. Is it? Is it wonderful? What are they combined about? They're combined to plot against the Lord and his anointed. So it's anti-Christ too. It's anti-God and it's anti-Christ. And here's their language. Now, here they are, one language, one... Sp- no, many languages, one voice, okay? This time it's many languages with one voice. What do they say with their one voice? Let us asunder, break their bands. Whose bands? The bands of the Lord and his anointed. Let us cast their cords from us. The cords that bind us. What are the cords that bind them? Well, it's God's law. God's law. We don't want to be bound by that. It's interesting that the word religion comes from religio. It comes from Latin, which means to bind. You know, you may see religion as a bind right enough. In fact, you may use that very expression. You say, well, what a bind. Well, it is a bind right enough, but it's supposed to bind you back to God. And it's a great thing to be bound to God. But they don't see it like that, and maybe you don't either. Let us asunder, break their bands, and cast their cords from us. They're all saying that, the kings of the earth, with many languages, but with one voice. How widespread, how widespread this rebellion against God. And that brings in the other question, or the other feature of this rebellion, how easily it took place. Where are the dissenters? Let's say, just for the sake of argument, that you have 500,000 people in the earth at this point. Is there nobody at all who doesn't think Babylon's a good idea? Is there nobody at all who doesn't think the tower's a good idea? Is there nobody at all who's saying, well, hang on, what's this project really about? Is there nobody saying God told us to disperse, to take our people groups elsewhere, to establish national governments and be at peace with each other? Is there anybody saying all that? I'll tell you why that question is important. Because Noah's still alive. Shem, his son, is still alive. Where are they? The answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know the way things work. And the way things work are quite surprising. I mean, in some ways they're predictable, in other ways they're surprising. Um, Maybe the whole project is being sold as a very God-honoring thing. Let's keep people together. However they disperse, it's better to keep them together. Let's have a center. Let's make the center the worship of God. Let's build a temple on the top of the tower, and let's make sure that this temple is for the worship of God, and so on and so on. Now, you need to be alive to sometimes recognize what's going on with things like that, you see. 
to know when something is wrong. I think we saw that in connection with Cain. You remember when he took his false worship before God. I mean, for all the world, it looked like true worship. Here he is bringing his fruit of the ground before the Lord, and the Lord did not have respect to the offering. Maybe there were plenty of people around in both their families, Cain and Abel, who thought, what's wrong with it? There might have been good people who thought, what's wrong with it, too? They may have wondered, what really is wrong with it? Maybe the Tower of Babel wasn't immediately idolatrous in that respect. Maybe it was dressed up to be for God. Maybe. Maybe, too. Although the language here is that the whole earth had one language and one speech, and they journeyed from the east, and they built a tower... Maybe the language, although it's universal, maybe it allows for somebody like Noah, somebody like Shem and their families to be marginalized, just I mean, that they're not listened to, which would be a thought because it would be the second time in his life. You know, it's very hard to watch a disaster twice. It really is, especially when you see it happening. You've seen it before, and you know where it's going. You know, sometimes see that in the life of churches. You know, you look at a you look at a church that's apostatized, and you see how it fell, perhaps in the 19th century, how it moved into unbelief, how it flirted with worship, and all. You see it, and then suddenly you see the same thing happening again. You see, and it's like a car crash again. You know what's happening. You know where it's going, but it's as though it never happened before. You see. They say history doesn't repeat itself, but as the man said, well, it certainly rhymes. It's just the same thing happening again. I'm sure Noah did say, listen to God. God told us to disperse. But no, the impetus is there, you see. The impetus is there. But these things are easily done when you have a strong charismatic figure, you see. If people drift from God, um, then all that's needed is a strong charismatic figure just to accelerate that process. Once you've got that, it just really grows arms and legs. I sometimes fear for ourselves politically and religiously. We're in a bad way both politically and religiously. But the kind of bad way we're in is not as bad as it could be. All it needs is somebody of real power to yank it powerfully in the wrong direction. There's a vacuum. We're losing our ability to resist things. We're losing our ability to understand things. I often wonder what would happen if we were seriously invaded by a people, if we had to go to war. Have we got the mind to go to war? Have we got the strength? Have we got something to fight for? Have we got the ideology to to make us a people who would resist? I mean, could we honestly stand for the defense of liberty and nation for God's sake? Could we stand for a church? Could we shed blood like the Covenanters did? Could we go to prison like they did? Could we go to the scaffold like they did? Could we? We could, of course, bat that off by saying we would be dependent upon grace at the time. Fair enough, we'd be dependent upon grace at the time, but I would warn you and warn me against batting it off that easily. Have I got the strength of conviction and purpose and the zeal for God that would do that? Wherever the dissenting voices were, they didn't work. We read of nobody being persecuted or killed because they didn't die. Noah still lived. 
But if he spoke, he's not heard. So I don't know whether the church was already seriously declined in these four generations or not. I don't know. My guess is that it possibly was. But that's the problem too, you see. It's not just that the rejection of God was widespread and easy, but it was quick. I mean, in the space of 200 years, the thinking had completely changed. But those of you who are, let's say, 70 or 80 just now, you can see how quickly people have changed. Um, Do you almost recognize the city that you're in from what it was 50 years ago? Possibly not. Things do change quickly. Just rewind 200 years from the Tower of Babel and you've only got a a handful of people in the world and they're all pretty sure what went wrong and they're all pretty sure what would be necessary to keep it right, with the exception of Ham and Canaan and his family. But within 200 years, everybody's thinking like Ham and Canaan and nobody's thinking like Noah and Shem. Astonishing, really, how quickly such a thing happens. There's no death rate here, really, to speak of. Everybody's living long. People are very fertile because the curse has not eaten its way thoroughly into the world. The population's growing very, very quickly, but it's moving in the wrong direction. Rejection of God. No one's just watching a collapse. But it's not just a rejection of God, and I'm finishing with this, If I can say so, it's worse than that. If you can think of anything being worse than that. It's not just rejection of God, it's a replacement of God. People often say that you can't do without God. I mean, even the new atheists say that there's some kind of gene that makes us conceive of a God. Well, it's not genetic, uh, but absolutely there is something in us that makes us see God. We can't do without God. We have to bow at some shrine. We have to stand in awe at something. If we don't stand in awe of God, we'll stand in awe of the universe because we must stand in awe of something. And this is where Babylon becomes significant, you see, because, to be honest, I don't think the sun and the moon and the stars are being worshipped in the Tower of Babel at all. I think there's a false god in Babylon, all right, but it's not the sun, it's not the moon, and it's not the stars. The god that's being worshipped in Babel is much more dangerous than that, and it's much more enduring than that, and it's much more pervasive than that. It's a god that's being worshipped in here, right now, in all probability, by some of yourselves. But we'll leave it till tonight to see what that God is, and we'll see how God deals with it too. We'll revisit the Tower of Babel and its destruction tonight, God willing. Let us pray. Eternal God, we pray that you would preserve us from rejecting our great maker, our creator, our sustainer, and our savior, that we would not reject the God who made us. And we are conscious that by nature we will do that. Even when our savior was being offered by Pilate to the people, 
they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And who, how true that is of us in our fallen humanity. And we pray that you would keep us recognizing your sovereignty and lordship, and that we would willingly bow the knee and willingly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May that day come when the nations of the world will unite properly, and however many languages they speak, that they will truly have one voice, and that they will say, The Lord, He is God. Bless us in our deliberation of these things, we pray. Help us to recognize the spirit of Babylon, and help us always to resist it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's uh, close. Well, really, in a way, we're only halfway through because we're still looking at this tonight. But let's close for now our worship in Psalm 2, on page 2 of your psalm book, singing to the tune Marl, Psalm 2, on page 2. Why do the heathen nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain or vain things? Earth's kings combine in enmity. Her rulers join against God's reign. They take their stand against the Lord and challenge his Christ, his anointed one. Let us break off their chains from us with their restraints. Let us be done. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord on high derides them all. Then he rebukes them in his wrath, his rage and terror on them fall. The Lord has made it known to them, my chosen king I have installed on Zion, not on the Tower of Babel, my own holy hill. He is the one whom I have called. There's a, an ongoing conflict between the spiritual Jerusalem and Babylon. Uh, we'll see it more tonight. One to six, let's stand to sing.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.